Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Bloc Québécois leader tabled a motion for Canada to sever ties with the monarchy. Sounds easy, right? In your dreams. Peter McNally, McGill University's Royal Watcher, will fill us in on the constitutional complexities involved. Ontario's back in the black, but uh, government programs remain underfunded. That sounds a little suspect, doesn't it? Sheila Black, who is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, will join us for that. And an update on Hamilton's real estate market from CMHC. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, leader of the Bloc Québécois uh, tabled a motion in the House of Commons the other day, essentially asking uh, Parliament and Canada to sever ties with the monarchy. Uh, Bloc leader uh, Yves-Francois Blachette uh, Tuesday called the institution incredibly racist and slave-driven. It's archaic, he said. It's a thing of the past. It's almost uh, ridiculous and humiliating. Uh, he went on to give a speech and uh, calling them to take the necessary steps to do away with the monarchy. Uh, first of all, it's probably got a snowball's chance of, of, of passing even in the House of Commons. But even if that were to happen, uh, that uh, process that uh, Mr. Blanchet talked about is rather extensive and complicated. And uh, we want to talk about that a little bit. And then uh, and, and about the efficacy of, of, of Mr. Blanchett's uh, motion in the first place. Uh, to do all this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Peter McNally, who's a professor emeritus with the School of Information and the Director of History with McGill Project at McGill University. He's McGill's royal watcher and always a, a welcome guest on the program. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to be talking with you again. Bill, great to be chatting with you and your listeners. Uh, to the surprise of nobody, the Black Quebecois leader wants to sever ties with the monarchy. I mean, that's been a pretty consistent theme for that party long before Mr. Blanchet became the leader, hasn't it? Oh, yes. The Bloc Québécois, remember, was established back in the 1990s as basically the Ottawa wing of the Party Québécois. Uh, they're both uh, separatists. Uh, they want to uh, break up Canada. And uh, I think everybody knows uh, what, what they're about. Uh, they object to anything that uh, shows a Canadian identity. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's the flag, whether it's the national anthem. Uh, and they make it quite clear uh, when they're elected that, they, uh, that their only concern is uh, what's good for their particular constituency in Quebec and uh, the rest of the country, or indeed even the interests of other people in Quebec, have, are, are of no concern with them whatsoever. Uh, and remember that uh, the bulk of uh, the people in Quebec do vote for federalist parties. Well, exactly. But I mean, you know, that's again part of the, the bloc's mantra. I mean, they don't even consider themselves uh, you know, part of the, they, they, they say they're members of a foreign parliament. Uh, you know, that's, we're Quebecois and uh, we go to this other area, this other country uh, for Ottawa. Uh, the, the spin they put on this thing is ridiculous. And I guess it, it's getting a little tiresome to hear. And I'm not at all surprised that I guess, uh, you know, it, well, the, the, these stories started, I guess, was the, probably moments after the Queen passed away a few weeks ago. And, and for him to actually put it on the, uh, the docket here to be voted on by parliament, uh, seems to me more like a headline-grabbing attempt than it is much of anything else. He, he understands what the process is. He's not a stupid man. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's a way for them to uh, gain publicity. Uh, they know it's going to be un very unpopular in the rest of the country. They even know within Quebec itself that it's not particularly popular. But the thing is, is that it's a way to keep themselves uh, in the news. It's a headline grabber, and uh, yeah, it, it stirs debate. And quite frankly, you know, 
these are questions. I mean, there, there's uh, discussing these things. Uh, we're in a free democracy. Why not discuss them? They should be put on the table, and uh, that's what we're doing today. Exactly. And, and without getting too deeply into the w political weeds here, it's a rather complicated process if, if, and that's a big if, uh, this government decided that, yeah, we want to pursue this idea. Well, yeah, this idea of the oath, you see, it's tied up with the Constitution. And uh, if you read the uh, British North America Act of 1867, and then its revision of the Canada Act of 1982, um, it's, uh, you're, you're caught in exactly the same situation. Uh, anything that deals with the monarchy requires uh, a, um, a constitutional amendment. That requires uh, unanimity uh, of all the 10 provinces and the federal parliament as well, too. And uh, and we know perfectly well that uh, the Bloc Québécois and the nationalists uh, in Quebec uh, will only agree uh, to, to that sort of change dealing with the monarchy in conjunction with the whole with the completely rewriting of the Canadian Constitution. So uh, to, to, oh, to get into this would be just open Pandora's box. Uh, you would just find that we would be in the midst of another huge uh, constitutional debate, uh, which uh, just tore the country apart back in the 1980s and 90s. And frankly, I don't think that's to anybody's advantage. Well, and that's one of the the elements to this. That I think that you know is is probably what's driving this. I mean, there, I'm sure I know there are some people that are ambivalent towards the monarchy. Always have been, uh, and sure. if that's their their point of view, you know, they're not going to try to convince them otherwise. Uh, but as as you've told us in the past, if we were to open up that act, it's open to everything. You may as well just throw it in the garbage then, because you're going to have people saying, "Well, I want I want this now. I want this." Because when, once you break down those barriers and those guardrails, which are included in the BNA, uh, everything's on the table right now. So we're starting back at square one. Well, yes, we are. You see, and of course, remember uh, the thing about the monarchy also is is that it is also the representation of our whole parliamentary system of government, which is one of the distinctive features of the whole Canadian constitutional system. Uh, so, the, and therefore. Are we, would we keep a parliamentary system? Would we go to something like the American presidential system with their complicated Senate and uh, uh, House of Representatives, where, you know, basically they have a general election every two years? Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I remember then out in Alberta, we had Preston Manning. He was saying, well, he wanted an equal Senate whereby each province had the same number of senators the way they do in the United States. Uh, how would that play out? Uh, it's just it would become an endless uh, an endless business, and then of course, as I say in Quebec, there's this very very strong separatist group. And what's going on out in Alberta as well too, uh, with their new premier, uh, uh, Miss Smith? Uh, we uh, you know she. <laughs> Uh, she's moderated her stand somewhat uh, since uh, becoming premier. But before she became premier, she was talking about uh, Alberta passing what would in fact be a, uh, a sovereignty or a separatist act going well beyond anything that, uh, that Quebec has ever uh, done. Uh, no, you. we got to think about these sorts of things very clearly. Does this mean that we can't ever change? No, but it does mean that we got to sit down and think it through pretty clearly and uh, have some sense of, um, of, of community about where we're going. 
Well, and I guess you have to have some perspective here, too. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like Churchill's comment about democracy. It's the worst form of government, unless you compare it to any other form. Uh, well, it is, it's, it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's you know, better than most, and it's what we've got. You know, uh, this is the thing. You look at the Canadian Constitution, you think to yourself, boy, oh boy, this could be improved upon. But then look around the face of the world. Look at uh, through South America, where the great instability there and uh, where uh, every now and then almost every country seems to have to have a revolution of some sort or another. You look through the African and Asian countries. Um, there's a lot to be said for our parliamentary system. The Canadian federalism system, uh, the relationship between the federal and the provincial governments, well, it might not be perfect, but boy, it certainly works pretty uh, works pretty well. And I would say that we've got a reasonable balance here between uh, individual liberty plus also a sense of, of community uh, working together. Um, you know, the old uh, <laughs> saying, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But does that mean that you can't tinker with it? Or does that mean that you can't have some improvement? Well, sure, we know it can be improved. But boy, oh boy, uh, before you throw the bathwater out, make sure you save the baby. That's all I can think to say. Well, sure. And we've seen those cracks in some of those other systems. And that's not to suggest ours is the best. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we saw the U.S. system, which they thought was foolproof. You know, it's for the people, by the people, blah, blah, blah. What we found out is they're... Their federal elections really are non-existent. They have 50 state elections uh, that well, are run by the states, not by the federal government, and, and are easily abused, obviously. Yeah, it's a pretty scary thing that's going on down in the states at the moment, and uh, we'll be finding out, uh, I guess, within, what, about 10 days what's going to happen yeah. with their uh, uh, election. It's a midterm. It's not a presidential election, but this means that all of their uh, House of Representative seats and one-third of the Senate seats are up for, for election. And uh, we, we can see now their debatings. Um, many uh, uh, members, uh, many groups, are saying that unless their candidate wins, they will consider that the vote was a fraud. So uh, this is fundamental in a democratic system, accepting the validity of the votes and making sure that they're done fairly and well. And as you say, they do not have a federal agency that oversees elections the way we have in Canada uh, with federal elections. And uh, that's, that's worrying, very worrying. Well, it's, it, because they went along for over 200 years and everything seemed to be okay until, you know, one individual decided, no, I'm going to tinker with this. And now you find out that it's, it's so easily done. And, and you, you're right. I mean, there's no oversight. Uh, it's whoever is controlling the state legislature seems to control who's going to get elected these days. So, wow. and, and besides, this is this is really, Peter, kind of a moot point anyway, because there's no way that uh, Blanchett's motion is even going to pass in Parliament. It'll get shut down and, and that'll be that. Well, I think you're right, and what we're talking about is a lot of theater here, and uh, I think that uh, we can take it for granted. It's it's not going to go anywhere, and frankly, in some ways, by virtue of even proposing these sorts of things, uh, he pretty much ensures that, that it's not going to happen, because uh, I don't think any of the other parties would want to be associated with anything of that sort that, that he put together. So, well, uh, but but anyway, hey, uh, well, theater theater is yeah. uh, Ottawa theater is one of the great indoor sports for the entire country. <laughs> so that's worth something in itself. Exactly. Uh, let's switch gears if I could. Uh, there's a new prime minister in the UK. Uh, he's hoping this one lasts more than 45 days. 
Uh, I, I get the sense that he will. Uh, but uh, Rishi Sunak is a, a brother. <laughs> we hope he's going to last longer than a, than a head of lettuce. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a rather unique individual. His, his name has come up in the past, of course, when Boris Johnson was was on the outs. Uh, they thought he was going to be the choice then. He wasn't. Uh, but uh, he brings with him a, a, an interesting personality, an interesting background, and a lot of money, too. He's, uh, As the headline said in the London Times the other day, this is the first time a British prime minister is actually richer than the monarchy, uh, which is highly unusual over there. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I gather a lot of the wealth comes from his wife's family and uh, that uh, she is so wealthy. And on top of this, she even had this wonderful tax break that apparently that so much for so many of her holdings were overseas, particularly in Hong Kong, that uh, she was... Uh, uh, free of British taxes. And for political reasons, uh, she realized that this was just not going to wash. So I think that she had to uh, um, back away from the, the special tax, tax provision she had in order to help uh, her husband have credibility on becoming uh, a prime minister. Uh, I gather he's made a certain amount of money on his own as well, too. Uh, but they're so wealthy that not only can... Uh, are they going to live in the prime minister's residence at number 10 Downing Street? But they even have uh, up in up in Kensington, a very posh neighborhood in London. They even have a, a fancy place there as well. So they're going to divide their time between the uh, these two London residences of theirs. Um, and uh, but uh, yeah, you're, he, he's wealthy now. This brings up an interesting question, of course. What is the what is the wealth of the royal family? And the truth of the matter is, is that well, nobody really quite knows to be honest about it. Yeah, um, I mean, it, we've, and, we've had estimates because the holdings and a number of other things like that. But I mean, that was always the concern. Uh, in the UK, though, wasn't it, Peter, that, uh, you know, we were in hard economic times and, you know, as bad as it is here in Canada, inflation wise, it's it's worse than the UK right now. Uh, and the question is, as well, you know, can the monarchy understand it or now can our new prime minister even relate to, to the plight of, of the, the people that are going through this right now? Well, that's that's that was one of the reasons why he lost out initially to mistrust. Uh, uh, in the summer time, because uh, people said, look, how can a wealthy man like this have any understanding of what uh, people are going through? But then, of course, Miss Tr Truss became uh, prime minister, and she made a total mess of the economy. Uh, and, you know, the head of lettuce thing, she, she, she didn't last as long as the head of lettuce. Uh, and uh, she had no, she, I think, as somebody very well put it, I think, was is that she got promoted to her level of incompetence. And uh, she made a, a number of fine of economic and decisions that were disastrous for the British uh, economy. Uh, whereas this new prime minister, remember, he was uh, minister of, uh, of the treasury. Uh, he was, uh, he was, in fact, what they call it now, the head of the exchequer, which is basically the, the British uh, minister of finance. And, uh, and last summer, when he uh, lost out to her. He made the point that uh, that the British economy, if it followed Miss Truss's um, uh, out, uh, her blueprint, it would lead to disaster, and it turned out to be absolutely correct. And so uh, I think uh, the reason that he got the job after she was ejected from office was because people now understood that if they didn't follow um, him, 
that the country would just go down the drain economically. So uh, between him and his new uh, 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 finance guy, I'm, uh, they seem to be on the right track again. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can say that because he's a wealthy man, he might not understand the problems of ordinary people. But the other side of the coin is, is if he's a wealthy man, he at least has some understanding of what the economy and finances and money are all about and uh, how to keep uh, uh, things things operating uh, properly. So let's keep our fingers crossed because if the British economy goes down, the whole world economy will be in big trouble. The British economy is still so powerful and so important that if it falters, it would have a terrible ripple of effect upon all the rest of us. I, I mean, other countries, uh, the United States comes to mind, but there have been others. Uh, will select leaders, would they think have that business acumen and you have to run the government like a business? And uh, we saw what happened south of the border uh, when, when Mr. Trump attempted to do that. And they're still, I think, suffering from the ramifications of that. Uh, but as you've said, uh, Prime Minister Sinak is... He's come up through the ranks. I mean, he's made his own money. I mean, he's, he's not self-made. There was a nice foundation there to begin with, but he's been very successful in his own right. And and he's got the political chops for this, too. As you say, he didn't just, you know, come you know, right out of the business section and say, OK, I want to be the prime minister now. Uh, he's risen through the ranks and, and learned the ropes, I guess, which is so very important uh, when you're trying to get an economy back on track like this. Well, yeah, no, that's that's very good. And, you know, running a, a government like a business, well, up to a point, that's true. And uh, certainly the financial side has to be run in a very business-like way. But at the same time, we know that government does an awful lot that isn't the concern of business. And this is sort of the welfare of people and making sure that uh, people have the type of social services that are required and have a sense of security. And uh, But you need money to do these things. And so I think the, the business side for the money is uh, definitely the way you want to go. But I think where uh, this new prime minister is going to be watched very closely is, does he also understand the social aspects of uh, of community and uh and and doing things that keep the community um um coherent and and running in a good way and it's going to be these these two jobs that he does and uh people are going to watch very very closely both within the united kingdom and across the face of the of, of the world to see how how he balances this job Let's keep our fingers crossed because frankly there's nothing to be gained for the rest of the world by instability in Britain. I got about a minute left. I wanted to ask one other thing about about process and what's going on here. I mean, everybody, we got a new prime minister. There's a new king. Uh, the queen met with the prime minister on a weekly basis uh, behind closed doors, and and they had discussions whether it was going to be a lunch meeting or whatever. And that's a, a tradition that's gone on from generations. Does King Charles plan on doing that as well? I, I suspect that he probably does. Uh, this was one of uh, Queen Elizabeth's great innovations. Uh, before then, monarchs would meet uh, with the prime ministers, but not in such a regular way. And a lot of their dealings were done by uh, correspondence. And uh, but it was Queen Elizabeth II, and when she came to the throne, she began this practice of having these weekly meetings. And at the same time, by having a minimal amount of written correspondence. And so she and uh, her private secretary and the prime minister's secretary 
private secretary would work out an agenda. And apparently, uh, you know, she always had that purse with her. And mm -hmm. uh, when okay. she'd meet in, in, in uh, private, just the two of them, uh, with the prime minister, she'd open the purse and she would have very neatly written by hand on a, on a card their agenda. And she would go through it and they would discuss these things. And then afterwards, well, their private secretary might do some correspondence, but she wouldn't so much. And I suspect that Charles would do the same thing because, frankly, it seemed to work very, very well. It kept the confidentiality. And how the agreement that she would strike with all of her prime ministers when they began was she said, you can count upon my support right down the line. She said, in return, she said, I have some things that I will expect your support on, but more to the point, there will be confidentiality. I won't talk, uh, I will not tell anybody what happens between us, and I expect you to uh, keep confidentiality in the same way. And uh, it seemed to be a system that worked out very, very well. Uh, I mean, this is a constitutional monarchy. In the end, of course, uh, she uh, works on the advice that she receives from her prime ministers. Or that's what the Queen did, and I'm sure King Charles will do the same thing as well. But there would be give and take. And yeah. uh, obviously, there was uh, there'd be a lot of listening back and forth. Now, I gather the, uh, Queen Elizabeth's way of doing it was is mostly to ask questions. She wouldn't so much just say, this is what I think or what I want. But apparently, she would ask questions so that in the end, it was pretty clear where she stood. And... Uh, At the end, of course, it was the prime ministers who made a lot of these final decisions. But, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was just part of a system that seemed to work. Exactly. Peter, we've got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. As always, thank you for your perspective on this. Really appreciate it. Listen, great chatting with you, Bill, and with your uh, audience. Have a good day. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. That's uh, Professor Peter McNally from uh, McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the good news is uh, Ontario is out of the black, out of the red, ink and, and into the black, uh, which was a kind of a surprise to an awful lot of people. I mean, the pandemic has ravaged economies all over the world, and Ontario was not excluded from that, certainly. And uh, the anticipation, uh, as late as the last time uh, the finance minister Peter Bethlenfalvy actually uh, introduced some economic measures, was that uh, we were going to be in debt for a long, long time, and it was going to take a while to get out of it. Uh, now we're not. Uh, because of uh, unexpected revenues, shall we say. So that's, I suppose, from a, a bookkeeping standpoint, that's the good news. But at what cost? Uh, what are they going to do with that money? And, uh, you know, just uh, we, we want governments to spend wisely, but uh, they, there's things they have to spend this money on. Let's talk about that with our next guest. Uh, Sheila Block, who is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, joins us on the program to talk about that. Sheila, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I, we all talk about fiscal responsibility, and we want all of our governments of any political stripe to be like that. Uh, there's a story behind the story here, of course, when a government goes in the black like this. Uh, one of the things that, that they don't want to admit, they usually want to just say, well, it's because we're great fiscal managers. Uh, when interest rates skyrocket like they have over the last couple of weeks, governments take a lot more money, and that, that certainly helps the, the bottom line for them, doesn't it? So what was really driving this increase in revenues um, are, are kind of two things, one of which is uh, inflation. Um, and while that can be bad news for all sorts of reasons, it's good news for government revenues. Um, and the other thing is we really had a fast takeoff and, and, uh, and 
a lot of economic activity coming out of uh, the lockdowns that were happening earlier in the pandemic, although that's a little bit hard to remember at this point, given all the bad news we've had lately. So two things, more economic activity as, as the economy opened up more. And unfortunately, that increase in, in inflation, uh, the only good news about that is it does increase government revenues. It, well, exactly. I mean, you know, especially as we've talked about on the program before, I mean, you know, the, the money that the money the governments generate, federal and provincial, is a percentage of what we pay, you know, whether it's for gasoline or bread or whatever the case may be. Uh, and then that goes right into the coffers. I mean, they, it's, it's a windfall for them that I guess they didn't really expect. But the question I guess a lot of people are going to be asking, and I think justifiably so, what are they going to do with the money? Uh, because there's a lot of, of people, very needy people, and I think very worthwhile causes right now that said, hey, you know, six months ago, you said you couldn't afford to help us. Uh, let's talk about that now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there, <laughs> this should be good news. And what the government should be doing immediately is, is shoring up, um, uh, shoring up those services that we all need that are, that are kind of falling down pretty obviously at the moment. And so the first piece, of course, is healthcare. And of course, it's around, uh, we still have that legislation, Bill 124, that yep. holds nurses and other healthcare workers and other public sector workers wage increases to 1% when we know that uh, inflation last month was at 7%. Um, and they are having real trouble keeping people. So you know, that's one clear place where that money should be going. And then, as you're saying, a lot of people are hurting. And we need money to be directed to the, towards those that are hurting and not towards those that, you know, the increase in prices is, is an inconvenience uh, rather than, than a big crisis. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're all entitled to complain about what's going on economically with inflation. Uh, but there are some people that just don't like it, can afford it, but don't like it. And others that are you know, hard pressed now to, to make ends meet and put food on the table. I mean, the increased usage of food banks right now is, is frightening to understand that there's so many people now that are being uh, ravaged by, by what's going on here. So how do you approach a government like this and talk about, well, as you mentioned, for instance, uh, healthcare workers, uh, who have been, a lot of people think, disadvantaged and, and hard done by by this government policy. As a matter of fact, as, as, as you and I are talking right now, of course, there's uh, uh, the threat of, of education workers maybe going on strike because of the offer that they got from the government. That They also, of course, were under that, that legislation. Um, is it catch-up time right now for some of these unions and some of these workers that have been, they think, you know, under extreme pressure when other people didn't have to go through those sorts of things? Is it time to, to say, okay, now we're going to be fair with you? Or does the government still think they were fair before? Well, I think the government, you can always, you can always realize that you've got some new information here and move on. And I think the government would be respected for that. And so I think what's really important to remember is, uh, you know, that money that would go towards education or that money that would go towards healthcare is money of helping kids catch up from two years of very tough online, not online, those kinds of, of real learning deficits, and really trying to get our healthcare um, uh, system to be able to catch up from, from the from the impact of COVID, from the impact of the delays in other kinds of care that happened because of COVID, there's a lot of catching up that needs to do, needs to happen. And what we need to do is, you know, keep those workers there, 
Um, also, let them know that they are respected by government. And that's what we've heard a lot of, that, that those workers who have been through so much really feel disrespected. And I think we have to kind of keep our eye on the prize. This is about keeping our healthcare system going so that when you're sick, you're not waiting for 20 hours in, a, um, in an emergency room and making sure that your kids get what they need inside the healthcare system, uh, inside the education system, not outside of it. Well, and because the, there are some stories that are happening here that we, I think, need to be aware of. And well, you mentioned about staying in ER. I mean, look at the influx of, of patients who were at the Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto the other day. But, you know, it's ridiculous the number of people uh, that are crowding into hospitals right now. I mentioned on the show the uh, here in Hamilton a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the hospitals here is actually using two or three floors from a, a, a hospital or a, a hotel downtown. And I don't know that was going on during COVID, but it's still happening because they don't have enough beds. Uh, the government's got to step in. I mean, that's their wheelhouse, you know, health care and education. You know, they they remind the federal government of this all the time, that those are our responsibilities. Well, you know, they got to step up here, don't they? I think they do. And I think what's important uh, to look at from that Financial Accountability Office report um, was that they took a look over um, the next, uh, you know, five or six years. And what they saw was consistent plans of government spending that would not meet the government's own plans, not even what we need there. So I think we really have to take a hard look um, at what this government is planning to do or what it's saying it needs to do uh, and really take a look at how um, we need to enhance <laughs> those public services. And that's not a one-time one deal. You know, that's not, oh, this year we'll put in some money and then next year, if there's a slowdown, um, will stop again. We actually need consistent funding, not only for building things, not only for building highways and building hospitals, but for more importantly, to pay for the people to do the work in those, in those institutions, in those hospitals, well, in those schools. Well, because Sheila, I'm sure you've looked at the numbers as we have. And, you know, I, you know, I, when we talk about, for instance, you know, trying to help the healthcare system and shore up the healthcare system and, and they'll point to well, the fact that, you know, now they're letting, uh, you know, offshore uh, trained nurses come in here and they can actually work while they're, they're getting their accreditation for here. That's a wonderful idea. But the numbers indicate that for every two or three new people go in the front door, there's three or four walking out the back door that says, I can't do this anymore. Uh, you know, I, the, the workload is too heavy. The, the pay is, is terrible. Uh, they have to address that. I mean, you know, getting new people is wonderful, but if you can't retain the ones that you've got, you're no further ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. And there was a news story this morning that just talked about how hard-pressed uh, hospitals are, in particular, how, how they're losing nurses. And you've actually absolutely got it because the government says, well, you know, we keep on, you know, we've, we're hiring more nurses, we've got more money for nurses, but if... Uh, you know, it's kind of like if you if you're running the water in the bathtub, but you haven't uh, haven't put the plug in, you're not going to be any better off. And we really need to look at what is it about those working conditions, um, and what is it about that situation that is making it so hard to retain those workers. You know, these are, and you know, these are people who put money and time into. Uh, learning how to be these healthcare professionals and and why why aren't they staying? And I think we have to kind of listen to folks like the Ontario Nurses Association that are telling us what the problem is. It's understaffing, it's a lack of respect, and it's wages that are falling behind at a time when the demands are huge. 
And, and I know that they complained when the legislation was enacted, and, and justifiably so. I think it was terrible to say, okay, we're going to limit what you're doing. But under the guise of, well, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we have to be frugal, and this is not a good time to be asking for more money. This, according to any government, though, Sheila, there's no, no such thing as a good time to ask for more money. They're always going to have a reason why they can't do it. Uh, but now they got a reason why to say, okay, yeah, maybe we should have that discussion because they're not flush with cash. I get that. But at the same token, uh, they've got some wiggle room here. And I think there are some people that they, they really need to say, okay, let's, let's, let's try to make it better for you right now. And, and those are the ones you just addressed. Uh, yeah, that's, that's for sure. I think we really need to, uh, this government, you know, they're at the, they're at the start of a four-year mandate and they could kind of get rid of this problem with some new information that they have and get on to the other really pressing issues that that we have here or they you know or they will continue to deal with this really really terrible and actually frightening healthcare crisis it is to be sure well we'll see uh, mr bethlenfalvy says he's going to have an announcement uh, in the next little while and uh, hopefully he's going to listen to some of those folks sheila thank you so much for the time today really do appreciate it thanks so much for having me Take care. Sheila Black was a senior economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to talk about the housing market. It has ebbed and flowed. I mean, it's just been a crazy ride over the last couple of years with housing prices, availability, et cetera, et cetera. So where are we now? Uh, well, there's an interesting report that uh, talks about that. Uh, that uh, has come out. And uh, it, it's talking about options and strategies going ahead because the market is still going to continue. Uh, regardless of what prices are like and what interests are like, we still need a roof over our heads. Uh, and to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Anthony Passarelli, who is a senior analyst for the Hamilton, Halton, and Peel regions with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporations. Anthony, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. It's great to be back on the show. Let me ask you a couple of things. I'll get into the, the generalities of the market, but there's a particular section in the report that I was just reading last night uh, that talks about strategies here. And uh, and the one that we have heard an awful lot of in the last little while, of course, is called holding offers. Uh, you know, in many people's minds, I guess, you know, okay, it's time to sell the house. You get an agent, you make a deal, you sign the contract, they stick a sign on your front lawn and bingo, that's all. You just wait till, till the offers pour in, hopefully. But this strategy became popular a few years ago, and I know quite a few people that used it, uh, quite a few people that didn't like it uh, for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. But maybe explain exactly what holding offers means and, and, and what are the pluses and minuses of it. Absolutely. So we undertook this study because, as you, as you said, anecdotally, you're, you're hearing a lot of evidence of the strategy being used at a higher rate, uh, particularly that post-pandemic period uh, up until earlier this year, right? So we wanted to sort of quantify things uh, in a, a real scientific way. So what we did is we looked at the uh, listings of homes that sold and looked at the ones that had offer dates in them. So what holding offers means in real basic terms is a seller is setting a fixed date at which time they're going to review offers. And that's opposed to sort of the traditional way of listing a house where you basically welcome offers at any time. Mm -hmm. So that's basically how it works. Holding offers was used a lot more frequently during that post-pandemic period. And what we found is it was heavily tied to just the market conditions being so hot. So when the market's very hot, you see that strategy used a lot more often. Uh, it's generally intended to obviously generate multiple offers uh, and, and result in bidding on the home. Um, however, what we found is in other periods of time, 
such as the one we're currently in when the market's not so hot for sellers, it's hardly used. So we wanted to just quantify that and see how uh, prices reacted in those times when the market was hot uh, when you use the strategy. It's the first time I really came to my attention anyway. It was probably seven, eight years ago when there was another price boom, remember, uh, that was going on. And, you know, one of those, I guess the companion story is always, wow, the market's just going crazy. You know, I'm getting double what I paid for my house or whatever years ago. And, and, and the frustration I heard from a lot of people uh, that were involved in this this process was, uh, well, first of all, I don't know who I'm bidding against. I don't know what their bid is. I want the house. Uh, and if they're offering five hundred thousand, and I I, I offer four ninety nine, I'm going to lose. But I won't know that until they start opening the bids. Uh, as opposed to, as you say, the other method doing it is, uh, yeah, there's another offer. Well, can I beat that offer? You, you don't get to play poker here. You just submit an offer and, and hope for the best, don't you? You do. But one thing to keep in mind is when you're in a, a very hot market, even if you list the house in that conventional way, right, you will still many times result uh, end up bidding. So the bidding part is not necessarily always associated with the strategy. It's more to do with the market just being undersupplied. And that's something that CMHC really put a lot of emphasis on is that, you know, housing supply needs to be increased to the point where the market's generally in a balanced state. So you don't run into a lot of these situations where people are using the strategy. The uh, strategy of holding offers is more like a symptom of the market being undersupplied. If you address that root cause, you really will root out a lot of these issues that happen. And like I said, when the market was extremely uh, low supplied, like it was in that sort of 2021 to early this year, Mm -hmm. you saw houses selling with multiple offers, even the conventional way. So the holding offer strategy, what we ended up finding is that, you know, sometimes buyers would get a little or sellers would get a little bit more for the house. But it may not have been as much as people might think based on some of the, you know, stories out there in the media of the houses selling way over the list price. Well, yeah, especially, I mean, the stats that I saw from the report here indicate that uh, when all is said and done and the dust settles, when you guys did the analysis, it's it's marginal. It's the the increase of money uh, that they would have got for the house is uh, three to five percent. I thought I read in in one of the sections there, as opposed to somebody might think it's going to be thirty or forty percent. I mean, that's and it all comes down to to supply, doesn't it? Really, I mean, that's that's what makes that particular property uh, an urgent buy for somebody because they don't have too many other options if they're looking around. Exactly. And and we always come back to that supply issue in the report and emphasize that this, again, this strategy is really dependent on the market being undersupplied because when it's not, the that holding offer strategy is used a lot less. And when it is used, it's not successful on the part of the seller. Uh, We use the example of the, the spring of this year when the market really turned right away from being a seller's market mm-hmm. and you saw the strategy used less but when it was used there was no price advantage for the seller uh in in a lot of respects actually we we track the number of cancellations of listings with offer dates and the cancellations really shot up a lot so you saw a lot more cancellations because uh assume you're assuming that when it was canceled because the seller didn't get what they want for the home when they use that strategy just a couple more things about that, because I, there, as you, we've talked about in the past. I mean, you know, at this industry ebbs and flows, so there's there's going to be another boom. It may not be as crazy as the one we just went through a, a little while ago, but uh, people may be interested in this strategy and, and maybe employ it. I mean, I, I assume that's a discussion you have to have with your realtor as to whether or not it's going to be the best strategy for you. That's that's number one, and and secondly, 
how do you develop a, a, a pricing for that then? I mean, do you, do you lowball the house price in the hope that you're going to get bids that are going to exceed that? Or do you, uh, do you think, okay, I'm going to ask for a little bit more? Or do you run the risk of scaring people away if you ask for what some people might consider to be a, 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 you know, an, an impractical price for the house? That's a good point. One thing that clearly came out in the research is the association with the strategy and the list prices being low. So like you alluded to, when you're when you're holding back the offers and saying, you know, we're not accepting offers till X date, generally you're listing the house quite a bit lower than you would if you were to list it conventionally. And what we found is when the market is really hot and the strategy uh, has some level of success, uh, it seems to work because the house is listed low. So when, when you have a lot of buyers out there that are barely able to get into the market and afford homes, that lower list price does um, track them to that home versus the other homes. And it, gen mm. it generally ends up creating more bids and more traffic for those properties, which is why the price is a bit higher. So, and, and as you say, that's the hope and the expectation that they, as you said, the bid's going to go up. Uh, but in, in a circumstance like that, uh, is there a fear? I mean, I mean if I'm, if I'm going to be one of the bidders, I, and I see a house that's six hundred thousand dollars. That's a bargain, by the way. These days, I don't know if I would, but I'm, uh, I, I figure there's no way it's going to sell for six hundred thousand. So I better adjust my bid appropriately, you know, to six fifty or to six eighty five or something, because I know that the other people are going to be bidding high as well. That's correct. But one one thing I would say about that is, even though you may go above the list price, the list price is significantly lower than uh, a similar home that was listed another way. So you still have that hope. And I think we refer to a couple articles in uh, sort of economic behavior, psychology type articles where they talk about this, where the, the, the potential buyer still has that hope that, oh, I might get the house at that. Yeah. Uh, lower price point that I can afford, so I'll go for this house versus another house. Because keep in mind, when you're when you're going for homes and you're making offers, you, you have to make an offer on one home, right? You can't make offers on many homes at the same time because they could all be accepted. So you're kind of making a choice on which homes you're going to put an offer on, and the low list price tends to still attract people to that uh, home that has the offer date uh, when the market's really hot, and that's where they choose to go for, and then it you know, ends up increasing the number of bids of those houses. Now, if I'm the seller and, and, and you say the market is right, uh, this is what you're going to do, Bill. We're going to, we're going to hold offers on this. Uh, here's the date. It's going to be this afternoon at one o'clock. So you and I meet and, and we got these bids on the desk here. I open them up. What if I don't like any of them? The seller has the choice to, to not accept any of the offers and they, and they could um, cancel the listing, relist, it's all up to them. They have no, I, I, they don't have an obligation to accept. Or the can offer. you engage? Can you engage with one somebody who might hope for the house and hey, say you know, look at we've opened the offers. I, you know, I'm not pleased, but do you want to put in a second bid? Can you encourage that, or is is that the end of the process? Th that can hurt. I could just speak like for myself. I, I yeah, went yeah. through that, uh, my own family when we purchased a home a few years ago, and uh, there was an instance where the realtor came back to us and said. Uh, you know, we're doing another round of offers because they were all too low to the for the seller. Okay, so the, so it's, the, it's, the it's, seller has a number of options they can employ, yeah. and and uh, in, like we said, when the market's a little softer, like it is now, and 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 someone's trying to use this strategy still, and they don't like it, or maybe they don't get any offers or only one offer, they they sometimes cancel the listing outright. 
Okay, uh, that's so that's I want people to understand that that's a discussion with the realtor and as to what the strategy would be. And there's always going to be an option for you. It's not as if you're tied to the process and figure, okay, it didn't work. You're you're out of luck. Let, let's swing. I got a couple of minutes left here. I, I just want to get your your read on what's going on now. And I, I always like most other people, of course, uh, judge it from what I see. You know, looking out the window here in our place and. Uh, you know, when, when things were crazy a year, year and a half or so ago, I mean, you know, and there was a lot of activity in our particular neighborhood. I'm sure there was in other neighborhoods too, but, uh, I mean, people would put a listing up and it, usually it took a day to sell the place. And it was remarkable how quickly things were happening. And they most times uh, got more than asking in situations like that. And that was, that was the crazy time in the market. Cause I think that was a pretty common story back in those days. It's not happening anymore. And case in point, there's a house down the street from us right now. It's been on the market for about two months now. Uh, and I don't know if they've had offers or not, but clearly they're not getting what they wanted in a situation like that. Uh, what has happened to make this change so dramatically? Well, I think there's a number of factors. And the first thing I'll point to is you're right. The, the market has clearly shifted dramatically. And one of the reasons why we did this study on the holding offers is at the time, the houses were selling for you know that in, in within the you know seven days or less. Let's say uh, oh, that easily, was commonly yeah. happening, and now it's completely different. Uh, you know, a number of factors have contributed to this. The main thing is obviously the interest rate hikes. The interest rate hikes have been very aggressive uh, during this year, and that has definitely put uh, pressure on borrowing capacity of buyers. It was already challenging to begin with, and then you know. Buyers are now having to uh, being able to borrow less. And if they were already having a hard time getting the home they want in terms of price point, it made it even harder. Uh, another factor I would probably point to is just when the rates are going up like they are, there's a bit of a uh, wait and see approach on the, from the buyers. So the buyers are still out there. The potential buyers are out there, but they're sort of waiting to see if the prices continue to fall. And then you'd likely see them jumping back into the market at that time. Uh, the sales data that we we analyze for the region, it's well below, you know, any sort of benchmarks for the area. And mm -hmm. it, it seems like there is a bit of that sort of uh, waiting on the sidelines uh, approach on, on the buyer's part right now. So you just if, if you're a seller right now, you just have to learn to be patient. You do. You do. And one thing you would do as a study points to is, you know, a uh, more conventional li listing approach definitely would uh, would work better in this type of market than uh, in in compared to holding offers where you're listing a low and hope hoping for bids because you're not likely going to get the bids right now. Another thing I'd point out that was kind of interesting in the study that we did is when the market first changes, so it sort of shifts away from the sellers to more of a balanced uh, type of market. Uh, sellers are a bit slow to adapt to that. So we noticed in both the periods where this strategy was used a lot, uh, it took a couple months for the sellers to sort of get in tune with the market's doing. So uh, I'll give you the examples of April, May, that type of time. You saw a lot of, of the sellers still trying to use the holding offer strategy and it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And again, it all comes down to somebody, you know, in, in the business who knows the business and can understand and analyze the business and, and give you the best advice. I mean, like I say, you know, in those crazy days back a year and a half, two years ago, you, you just had to put a for sale sign up on the front lawn. And, uh, you know, they were beating down the doors to try to get the house. And it was crazy. And I don't know if we're ever going to see that again, but we're going to have to be smart about this, about the price that we're asking and uh, maybe a little more patient than we were in the past. Uh, I just want to direct our listeners. I guess that this report's available on the on your website. Yeah, on the CMHC website. The report's there to uh, download. 
And uh, my contact info is on the website as well if anyone wants to reach out to me. Yep. Housing Market Insight is the name of the report, Hamilton. And uh, there's some very interesting stuff. If you're going to, well, we're all going to be in the market at some point or other, either about to be or uh, at some point down the road. And uh, it, this is information I think is going to be very important in how you're going to decide what strategy you're going to use. Uh, Anthony, always a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. Anthony Passarelli, Senior Analyst with uh, Hamilton, Halton, and Peel Regions, of course, with Canada Mortgage and Housing. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.